Secretary Clinton. Listen, America, Donald Trump cannot be president. He would be a disaster, a failure, a complete F. And America, you deserve better than an F. So on November 8th, vote for me, and I promise I will be a stone-cold B. <laughs> and then on November 9th, make sure to check out Trump TV. You're going to hate it. And, and live from New York, York it's, it's Saturday night. Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. Tonight we'll be discussing Season 42, Episode 4 of Saturday Night Live with host Tom Hanks and musical guest Lady Gaga. I'm John Murray and joining me this week is Steve Finn. Steve is the host of Transparency on CHMR 93.5 FM in St. John's, Newfoundland. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR and you can connect with us at SNLAfterParty.fm. All right, Enjoy. Okay, so are you a Benedict Cumberbatch fan, Steve? Yeah, I was a fan of him before he he blew up to this, you know, A-list movie star status that he has now. I'm happy to see him with all that success, and Doctor Strange looks really awesome. So, Yeah. yeah, I'm team Cumberbatch for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I remember seeing him in a bunch of, like, bbc stuff way back in the day when he was a teenager and he always played like the awkward maladjusted <laughs> character he does that well yeah and so I, it was surprising when he broke out and all of a sudden now he's a heartthrob and everyone's looking at him not as this like gangly weirdo do you think he's going to be able to bring anything to the show when he hosts in a couple weeks i think he's going to kill it absolutely might be uh, the best episode so far of the season we usually do get good shows when you get these really seasoned, well-rounded British performers coming in. Um, yeah, here's hoping we've got a little bit of feedback that I thought would be worth batting around before we get into the episode. So Reddit user J craft chick says, I'm going to, I'm going to do a dramatic reading of, uh, <laughs> of her feedback. Just, just to keep things fun. I love, love, love the podcast. Didn't know this stuff existed and it makes me watch the show in a whole new light. That's high praise. Yeah. Yeah. And she asked a couple pointed questions that are pretty good. So let, let's try this one here. What makes a legendary host? For me, a legendary host is someone, you know, with enough status, of course, the Justin Timberlakes and the Alec Baldwin's, the Tom Hanks, uh, for example, they seem to blend in with the cast and you could almost argue that they would be a successful cast member in their own right. Right. Yeah, that's that's my criteria in a nutshell. I think if the the host comes in their first time and they're really game, like they're a good sport, they jump into the sketches and they just show that they're just willing to be adventurous and not really like hold back. I think that puts them in a good position to become legendary. But I think the real thing that determines whether you become a legendary host is whether you have staying power in your career in general, right? Like- when it comes right down to it, the show wants 
to create heat, right? Like they want to bring in hosts that are always going to be a draw and always generate excitement when they show up. And just simply being a, a good sport isn't enough if you don't also have an A-list movie role or, you know, in Justin Timberlake's case, you know, his next album or whatever. There's There's got to be something that's keeping you on top. And so you look at Tom Hanks. As far as Hollywood actors go, I don't know if there's anyone you can point to that's had more staying power. And that's why after, you know, 25 years or whatever, we're still seeing him on the show. He's America's dad after all. Yeah. Yeah. And the second question that J craft chick asks is the show. This season seems to be going all out on big names more than usual. Has it become more machine than cutting edge comedy, i.e. big names, product placement, political leanings, etc. So now that we're four episodes in and we've had a lot of you know, highlights and, and a few really good episodes. Do you feel that the show is better for, uh, really trying to cash in on all of the, the friends of the show now that they can pull in, or do you feel like maybe it's getting to be more spectacle than comedy, more spectacle than comedy. You might be onto something there. The way, the way that TV is going and, and cable viewership, the ratings are, are in no way comparable to 15, 20 years ago. Right. So if the viewership isn't there, if the ratings aren't there, then the money, the advertising isn't there. And maybe that's why they're getting pretty heavy handed with the cameos, the star power, because it draws people in. The tone of the show does seem to be shifting a little bit where it does seem like they're less confident to let it just rest on the cast and let them bring everything to the table. It seems like they don't really maybe have as much faith that the show can stand on just that. I don't I don't know if that's a good thing or not. That's a good point though. Yeah. So not a lot of conclusions to that. We can only really speculate, but I think it is fair to say that people are starting to recognize that there has been some sort of like reshuffling of priorities at the show. We know that the, the advertising rejiggering is part of that. My hope though, is that whatever it is they're doing to freshen up the show and change it up and make it more exciting. I hope it's purely in the interest of making the show as great as it can be and not out of desperation. Cause if there is something going on behind the scenes where, where money isn't flowing uh, sufficiently enough to continue to keep the show viable, um, that would be, that would be real tragic if that's kind of the way things are going. Cause we don't want to lose an institution like this. There's no, uh, I don't think there could ever be a replacement at, at this point in, in, uh, kind of the, the age of the internet. Yeah. And you're right though. Once we lose this show, that's pretty much it. There's no creating a show like this again from scratch, not in this climate. SNL is kind of like the, the last man standing in this, uh, this type of entertainment. So Excellent question. Thank you so much to uh, Redditor J Craft Chick. And uh, let's get into the show. Cold open, third and final debate. We obviously knew that this is what we were going to be getting this week. Do you feel that they found anything new or fresh to bring to this one that elevated it from what we've seen the last couple tries? Uh, the fact that Trump tried to remain more calm, <laughs> yep. which didn't last very long. And it was very obvious, like, you know, his advisor said, uh, we're not doing so well in these debates. Try to be a little less harsh. Sure. Be softer. And and he took that advice, but Trump be Trump. And uh, he kind of got worked up by, uh, by what Hillary was saying. And he went back to his old ways. Right. And it's gotten to a point where we've heard these these automatic retorts so much that it was very appropriate for Baldwin to throw in trademark <laughs> after each of these lines. 
So it was a good representation of everyone's impression of of what went went on. Yeah, I don't think anyone would say it wasn't on point or that they couldn't see exactly what they were riffing on from the real debate. Yeah. I thought Tom Hanks did really well as Chris Wallace. It's nice to see the host be the first face pop up. It's not a usual thing. Yeah, they usually don't do it because the amount of time required to get him looking presentable for the monologue usually doesn't just technically work out. Right. Was it funnier than what we've seen before or has this peaked? Yeah, it's it's peaked. Uh, you can't even say that this is the funniest of all the debate sketches. Yeah. So I think we've already seen the best of what this format has to offer. Uh, luckily, that was the last debate. Right. Overall, I I don't think it was a clunker. I think that it was fun and it was a good way to open the show. But I don't think it was really the the most noteworthy cold open we've had since the the premiere. That's true. Okay, let's get into Tom Hanks' monologue. The setup here is Tom Hanks has been labeled America's dad by some magazine, and he does a like legitimate monologue. One of the things we rarely see on SNL, he does a legitimate like sit down spotlight black background monologue. What did you think of Tom Hanks as America's dad? I thought it was really clever. I think they took that inspiration and created something that worked really well. Yep, I agree. Yeah, and if you think of the things that a real father and son or daughter would sit down and and speak about, like they drew so many parallels that just worked on both ends. Yeah, I thought it worked really well. I don't think it was like falling over funny, but because it was a smart angle and because... Tom Hanks has the ability to really sell it. <laughs> it just him putting on the the sweater and taking on that persona. It it just it really it flowed and I felt it worked and like you said the little bits that they were able to weave in to make it sound kind of like true to a you know let's sit down son we have to have a talk kind of talk. Uh all of that I thought played really well. It was smart and uh it wasn't too long. It was just all the things you want from a monologue. It was not something that we see too often and it was well executed. Black Jeopardy. Doug gets her done. He does, though. Yeah. Thoughts? We've seen Black Jeopardy before, and it's more or less followed that that formula, rule of threes. Here's uh, you know, the world through the black community's perspective, and then juxtaposed with someone not from that community who may not see things the same way. Right. So they took that sketch that we all know and retooled it to make a very interesting point, I found. Yeah. It's it's interesting that these ultra right wingers, you know, if you ask them what they felt about urban lifestyle and 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 that community, and you know, they wouldn't say uh, a whole lot of great things about it. They don't relate to them in that way. But ideologically, they might hold a lot of opinions that would make them uh, more similar than than we might believe. And sure, it was actually quite nice to see <laughs> them connect to two groups that way yeah, that we always uh, associate with conflict and tension. And I hope people take something away from that and it might open dialogue, but maybe I'm just being a. Yeah. I, I don't know if black jeopardy is going to be the catalyst that repairs race relations in the U S <laughs> but I agree with you a hundred percent. This was surprisingly refreshing to watch two distinct like socioeconomic and racial groups find common ground. <laughs> right. And it, it's funny. Cause I don't, I don't know if it was even trying to be that smart, but the way it felt watching it was like, why 
can't this be how things actually go? Right. Like, like, like when, uh, Darnell Hayes, you know, walks out to, to shake his hand. And at first he's like a little apprehensive to have like uh, a black man kind of walking at him. But then, you know, when he realizes it's okay and we're going to shake hands and we're going to have a little moment, it was like surprisingly endearing. It was. Yeah. And my thinking on it was, really good on SNL that they found a way to flip black jeopardy on its head because we've been so beaten over the head with race stuff. And even in SNL, right, they really, they really hit that topic a lot. So you don't want to just keep seeing that play out the same way. Uh, the, the fact that this was 180 degrees from it, but funnier for it, I felt like this, this was probably the the hardest I've laughed at a black jeopardy installment ever. So big win as far as I'm concerned. A win for sure. Yeah, really good. Really, really good. Set the show off on a really good note. We follow that up with Halloween Block Party. What do you make of this? Because this is this is one of those weird ones that really hangs on how much the players can sell it. Do you, do you feel this came together? It had some problems to work out in that script before it could really flourish on the 8-H stage. Sure. With what they had and what uh, Tom and Cecily and, and Melissa did with it, I think they really carried it well. Yep. It's a lot like what we've seen with uh, the Footloose sketch. Yeah, Campfire. Yeah. The the way to end it, that's also being used a lot too, is where they're suddenly won over. Yeah. I think that's just purely a, we need a way to exit this sketch, so we just need to flip it and get out quick. It's just too familiar. But- the other alternative is that the sketch could overstay its welcome and fizzles out because they don't have something to punctuate the sketch and get you ready to exit. So I like that they're consciously trying to bookend their sketches and get in and get out quick. I think that's really important to helping these sketches to not feel weighed down. Right. But it would be nice if they had more than, you know, one go-to concept in their grab bag for ending these things. Right. I saw Leslie Jones kind of cracking up a bit when they cut to her. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to figure out if that was actual acting or was she, was she just breaking on stage? No, that that was very mild breaking because the intention of cutting to her was to show them shaking their head in disbelief and bewilderment. But because when the camera wasn't on her, she was just watching Tom and Cecily and Melissa's performance and getting into it a little bit. When they cut to her, she had to rein that in quick. And then you can see her like kind of just sort of close her eyes and like shake her head and try and get into character to hit that cue. Okay. I think what you're seeing there is an obvious demonstration of Leslie not being a seasoned sketch performer, right? She's, she, she gets out of her head, right? She gets into the sketch and she starts taking it in as enjoyable rather than staying focused and, and in her character. And so whenever they need her to be really on point and on cue, she's just a little bit off in left field. Yeah. It's, it is always fun to see people break, but the fact that we're seeing so much of these little missed beats from Leslie, I don't know. It just, it just shows she has some work to do. She needs to get down to the UCB theater and really tighten up her game. Yeah. Yeah. My only other thought, like when I was watching it, the thing that immediately popped into my head is this is a perfect sketch to demonstrate the difference between a show like last week's and a show like this week's the writing, like you said, was kind of middle of the road, maybe not quite there a little like just, uh, it wasn't tight. And there was a few beats that they could have maybe cleaned up and really smoothed out. But in this case, because the host and the other players were so enthusiastic to make it work, 
it elevated the material. It was the execution that made this sketch serviceable. Whereas last week you had the same caliber of writing, but then you get a really awkward and clumsy execution of it and it pulls you out of the moment and you can't really embrace it. And so the sketch suffers. Mm -hmm. This show was a great demonstration of how the performance can keep a show together, even when the material is kind of iffy. I did want to say Melissa has quite a, quite a singing voice. Yeah. I think we've seen a little bit of it before, but this is her, I think this is the first time actually in a live sketch where she gets to sing and she's got some pipes on her. Yeah. She did, um, a little goof on Christina Aguilera in the crucible cast party pre-tape. Right. But if you also look at some of her pre SNL stuff, there's a lot of impressions where she does use her musicality to elevate them. She definitely can sing. So nice that they, they gave her an opportunity to demonstrate that. I thought that she really held her own. She's standing next to Tom Hanks and Cecily Strong, and there was nothing about what she was presenting that was any less committed than them. And I think that that really just uh, says a lot about her potential for the show. Yeah, and it wasn't an, an impression. No, it wasn't an impression. It was a, an original character, yeah. Now, let's digress just a little bit. A few weeks ago, when we were talking about Melissa we brought up the fact that we were sure that her regular voice was kind of that froggy, little bit deeper version of her, the one that was on display in the sketch. It started a, a bit of a kerfuffle on Reddit because there's a lot of people that are convinced that her real voice is the even keeled middle of the road non-distinct voice that sometimes she's used in some sketches and that what we're seeing in a sketch like this isn't her real voice that she's actually putting on a fake sort of froggy, uh, deeper voice for comedic purposes. And I really want to just smack that down once and for all, because that is not the case. The show would not let her take this material and have her put her own spin like vocally on it if it didn't suit the sketch. Right. And we've we've seen this froggy voice in enough sketches now where the sketch didn't hang on her doing an impression like the Burger King sketch, like this sketch, like a handful of other ones that people just need to get off that jag. You know, by the end of the season, this is going to be very firmly established, but I'm telling you emphatically <laughs> what you saw in this sketch, that is Melissa Villasenor's real voice and persona. Yeah, there's there's some sketches where it calls for her to have a, a more quote unquote normal sounding voice. Yeah, and she seems to be aware that she naturally sounds like a sexy frog. <laughs> so she, you know, she could do impressions. So why not, you know, do an impression of a a more regular sounding person? Yeah, <laughs> as insulting as that is to her, because I, I think she has a lovely voice. It's not an insult because it's a credit to her that she can get lost in a character like that to the point where people are genuinely confused about what her real voice is. Yeah. But just to, just to bookend that, come on people, this is not a hard one to figure out. <laughs> you know, if seven out of 10 sketches, she sounds one way and all of those sketches are also the sketches where she's not doing an impression. What, what's the takeaway there? Yeah. Okay. So enough on that CBS, their new show, which is, I guess the, the joke here is that it's intentionally crafted to be Emmy bait broken. Uh, so we get a, we get this pre-tape the, I think the the problem that I had with it wasn't, you know, the, the production, the voiceover, the performance, there wasn't anything wrong with what was up on screen. The only problem that I had with it was that I couldn't connect it to anything in the real world where I said, yeah, that's a truism. That is what CBS is doing. You know, that's kind of like this show that CBS has where you're right. You know, when you watch it, it, it's shooting a little higher than it's really capable of. 
And I just, I don't know what that is, but probably that's because I don't watch a lot of broadcast TV and even less CBS. Yeah. If it's not directly referencing a show on CBS, then it's merely saying this is what CBS would do. Yeah. And I think probably if we're being fair, probably just broadcast TV in general would do right there. I think broadcast TV wants to have the same sort of mystique and cred that cable shows are getting, you know, the, uh, the golden age of television doesn't seem to be happening on broadcast TV that often. So this is probably just a wider statement and maybe where we're tripping up is we're thinking purely in terms of what's on CBS's current roster and there's nothing really to tie it to. Uh, well, I think it is meant to be referencing CBS directly, not just network television in, in general, because CBS is known to be out of touch more so than NBC and, and the other big wigs. Sure. Their biggest claim to fame is the three camera sitcoms that are really just processed crash <laughs> sure. cheddar comedy. Well, actually, that's the other thing that this pre-tape touched on. It was making the point that it's a 30-minute show, so it must be a comedy. So we've got this upbeat commercial presentation. This went over my head because I'm not really sure exactly what the half an hour show is on CBS where they've completely missed the boat on what its tone should be. So again, I just, I didn't have anything to really attach to this and that's why it didn't play for me. But the little moments in it, I think were, were funny in and of themselves. It just, there's nothing memorable that I can really say this was smart and I got it. Yeah. We might need some feedback on this to put it to bed. Yeah. Yeah. Listeners, uh, school us, let us know what we're, we're missing on this one. Cause I don't think we can quite figure out the intention moving on a hundred floors of frights. What's your takeaway on this guy? It was very much reminiscent of the, the police training simulator sketch with Kevin Roberts played by Larry David. Yeah. <laughs> I was charmed by the performance overall. I think it was a good effect to use that same music over and over. <laughs> yes. That really got under my skin, which which helped put myself in the in the shoes of the uh the ones on the ride. Yeah. Mikey Day and, and Bobby Moynihan as the skeletons. They they're probably the uh the breakout <laughs> characters. <laughs> yeah, I think they were probably the glue that held this together. Right. I think because their dance and how in sync they were with the goofy little sound cues, you know, like the little erotic moan or the, <laughs> I poppy. Yeah. Um, because that was so tight, it, it was grin worthy yeah. in my mind. So because that was keeping me interested, the rest of it, that was just kind of so bizarre and, uh, inscrutable that didn't hurt yeah. as much because we were having fun with it overall. Right. I think what, what they were trying to do in that elevator was go for the long con where they present uh, David Pumpkins as something that's not scary, just silly. And, 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 and you question why he would be in a scary ride like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he keeps coming back. Right. And then when, when it's just the skeletons and you're, you're distracted by how stupid the all is, there's David Pumpkins behind you to give you that big jump scare. So it's like, Oh, that's why he's scary. Yeah. There's, <laughs> <laughs> that it's surprisingly effective when you take him out of the uh, the performance and put him like right next to you. That would creep me out. So <laughs> I don't know why exactly the sketch works or really what they were shooting for. There's there's more, still in my mind. There's more questions and answers. But I really I grinned. I chuckled. I I I enjoyed the ride even if I didn't understand what it was. Yeah, I agree. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Lady Gaga. Her first performance is Ayo, and 
She is joined by Mark Ronson of Uptown Funk fame. And her second performance is A Million Reasons. What's your takeaway on Lady Gaga's contribution? Well, I'm always excited to see new Lady Gaga because one thing's for sure, she's always going to be reinventing herself. She's like modern day Madonna. Yeah. I like her her new look. It was um it was more subtle, you know, on the on the scale of Lady Gaga. <laughs> I was going to say there's very few people that would <laughs> would describe what they were seeing as sort of like reined in or subdued, but you're right, compared to a suit made entirely of meat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See? <laughs> yeah, this is this is middle of the road Gaga. The songs though, did they hold up? What did, what did you think of the actual performance? I thought they were pretty good. Um Lady Gaga has a has a tendency to put a lot of personality into the song. She she uh she's good with accents and voices. She kind of had a southern drawl on this. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up on that too. I don't know. She's just an all-around entertainer. Now she's into acting on American Horror Story and she she does well on that show. This is one of those powerhouse types and you could almost say she's like the female Justin Timberlake of triple threat status, right, you know? Right. Yeah. I'm actually a little surprised that she didn't pop in on any sketches. I'm sure she was in something that was cut from dress. Very well could be. I know that there was a, I think I saw online that there was a Bruce Chandling that was cut. So it wouldn't have been that, but who knows what the other one was. I, my first thought when she came out in the cowboy hat, I couldn't help but think of Jenna Maroney on 30 Rock when <laughs> Jack Donaghy tells her she has to go country to recapture interest from middle America. And she does her big, like overtly sexual country anthem about tennis. You know that one? <laughs> yeah. As as soon as the lights came up and, and Lady Gaga was there front and center, that was the first like thought that went through my head. Once I cleared that away and just tried to accept the performance for what it was, I don't think you can deny her talent. I don't think this kind of music will ever really be for me. Her second song, the more, uh, the, the, the more subdued one where she's at the piano, that was, I think, a little bit more enjoyable for me. Again, I can't deny the performance chops or even the musicianship or the songwriting craft. Like there's nothing but stunning work on display here. It just wasn't for me. Fair enough. Okay. Moving on to weekend update last week. The thing that was really starting to get to me is how much they were just pounding on Trump mercilessly. Even if there wasn't really a great joke to be had, did you feel like this week's weekend update, uh, struck a better balance than we've had the last few weeks? Or do you think it's just kind of more of the same? More of the same. It's just status quo. Mm -hmm. It's never an issue with the jokes not being good enough. It's just that same topic of conversation starting off the show every time. It's uh, <laughs> it's not going to be missed. Yeah. Fortunately, the election's coming and this isn't hopefully going to be a long-term issue. I felt like this one, for whatever reason, it felt just a little bit lighter on Trump. And I don't know if that's just because they actually took the time to have a couple decent Hillary jokes, or maybe just the jokes overall were better. So you're more forgiving of it being all about Trump if you're at least laughing along with it you're, and they're finding really good, good jokes. So uh, I wasn't as put off with this one, but still less Trump would be welcome and hopefully we'll get that, you know, post-election. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Leslie Jones. She ain't shy. <laughs> For me, I felt that she was using her amazing delivery to compensate for some <laughs> arguably lazy joke writing. I think that's fair. Yeah. Did you catch that? 
At the beginning, yes. The first thing that kind of put me off of it a little bit was she comes out with the same, I'm going to basically molest Colin Jost with my eyes kind of thing that she does. And she stumbled through the line too, which didn't help. Yeah, it felt a little labored. And so right off the bat, you're like, okay, I've seen this before, but I've seen a better version of this before. Right. So that kind of put me off a bit. But I felt like even though there was some stumbling and like you said, it's just her bombast, her ability to just like beat you over the head with the joke that sometimes sells it and makes it funnier than it should be. I felt like there was genuinely a few really good moments in it. I felt like it wasn't the tightest that we've seen from her, but I will say I thought it was probably one of the best we've seen of the last few that she's done. The best out of the last few, eh? Yeah, not overall, because uh, the first few that she did, like the one where she was mining some of her more tried and true stand up, the one about having like super babies and stuff like that, like that, those were the high watermarks for what she's brought to the weekend update stage. And then I felt like there's just been a slow and steady decline where it's been a little less interesting each time. I felt like this was an uptick, but I don't think it was groundbreaking in any way. Uh, anything else to say on Leslie Jones? No. Okay. <laughs> Next, we get the girl you wish you hadn't started a conversation with at a party. Thoughts? Oh, I, I <laughs> this is cringe humor at its finest. <laughs> you always meet these girls who've, who've gone through their first year of university and they've learned a whole bunch of stuff, which is great, but they don't have any r- real world experience to kind of tie it to. Okay. So that <laughs> they end up sounding like this. Yeah. It's good to care. But a lot of young people, they think outrage <laughs> is a, an acceptable replacement of action. Sure. The character and the angle, that's all really, really strong. How many times are we going to see the girl you wish you hadn't started a conversation with at a party before it runs out of steam? We could be, uh, we could be approaching that. Yeah. Even though there's still fun moments in it and the concept is still fun. It's getting a little looser and shakier. Uh, I felt like she was almost mashing up her impression with uh, Girlfriend's Talk Show a little bit. Like I felt like she wasn't quite as on point with the characterization as she was in the past. But that's a very you know small criticism. The the thing that is starting to wear on me is that each time we see it, even though the concept holds up, the actual things that she's saying are a little bit weaker right? Like they're trying to find words for her to stumble over and mispronounce, but they've already used a lot of the good ones. So they're, they're digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think the well is almost dry. Yeah, for sure. And you're right. I, I caught that, um, that reminiscence of, um, her girlfriend's talk show character, that awesome yeah. kind of voice. Yep. Okay. Getting past weekend update in the back half of the show, we get another live sketch. Uh, Sully Sullenberger is, uh, relegated to co-pilot status and we get Alec Baldwin back in the mix. Yeah. I'm kind of out of my element. I haven't watched Sully, so oh, okay. I'm not sure if it's referencing the actual character of Sully at all, more so the story behind it and how someone who's been praised, you know, and, and put so high on a pedestal, how would they would deal with, you know, kind of having to play second fiddle. Sure. Which I think is an actual FFA, FAA, is it FFA or FAA? FAA, Federal Aviation Administration. That, I, I'm pretty oh. sure that's a real FAA. John for the win. I just pulled that out of my butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's part of their regulation, I think, that after a certain time of not flying, you have to co-pilot for 18 hours. Sure. So 
I don't know. It's it's I, I like that kind of source of comedy. Okay. <laughs> I can fill in some of the the blanks there since you haven't seen the movie. The movie in no way presents Sully as sort of like attention hungry or petulant in any way. Like there's nothing about the movie that frames him in those terms. So it's not a goof on the movie as such. It very much is what you're saying, which is what if you had a character like Sully who is pretty much bulletproof. Like you can't really criticize the guy because he's a bona fide hero and considered as capable as any pilot that you could point to. What if you take him and put him in a situation where he has to check his ego <laughs> and is there comedy there? I think that was a fun concept and I can understand why they jumped on it, especially since they had Tom Hanks. You're not going to get another opportunity to make that fly. Right. You can't do it with two cast members and expect anyone to care, but you put the actual actor in the role and you immediately have something that has the potential to work. When the sketch started, I thought I had it pegged. I thought what they were going to do was they were going to put them in the cockpit And it was really going to be a thinly veiled metaphor for their hosting gigs, right? Like Sully's going to be rattling off some of his credentials and stats about, you know, the 900 flights that he's flown. And then Alec Baldwin's going to come back and be like, well, I've flown however many times he's hosted. And it was going to be a little bit of, of that kind of an interchange. I was sure that that's where they were going with it. I thought that was the, going to be the bit and no, they played it a little smarter conceptually. But I don't know if it really had the laughs necessary to kind of keep it going as long as it was. Yeah, it had some good laughs in the beginning. Like when he reminds the tower, I'm Sully. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it kind of fizzled out. I thought it kind of overstayed its welcome. And I felt that cutting back and forth to the, um, the exterior shots of the plane just kept sort of sapping the energy of it. Every time they came back, I was a little less enthusiastic for it to come back. Yeah. And, uh, there weren't any like really sort of jaw dropping jokes that pull you back into it. So, uh, it, it was fun for what it was, but I felt it never quite got off the ground. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Next pre-tape a girl's Halloween. It was very accurate. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, we'll just get a drink and we'll, we'll head out there for a bit. And, you know, they, they were really good at, at getting the millennial vernacular down. Sure. And <laughs> Halloween is always the night where girls and boys, it's not just girls, yep. get far too drunk and just make complete fools of themselves. And that's aside from wearing a stupid costume. Yeah. That's, that's just the icing on the cake that they're also dressed up as a cat or a mouse or a piece <laughs> of cheese. Uh, yeah, we're going to get a lot of slutty Harambe's, uh, this year (laughs) and slutty Ken bones. It's going to be, it's going to be an interesting Halloween. Yeah. I thought this was super on point. Our office used to be like right in the downtown core of, of Windsor and Windsor is about a three minute drive from Detroit. And our drinking age is two years sooner than the the U S it's a college town as well. Yeah. So we have a very thriving bar scene downtown. Like that does drive the downtown economy for better or worse. So it just gets overrun like a zombie horde of slutty kittens and slutty Harambe's. So this, uh, seeing this, it, it rang very, very true. And I think what made it a little bit smarter 
was by using the editing to show what their expectations are of a nice, modest, fun girls night out to what it deteriorates into almost immediately after they start drinking. I think that is hilarious because it's so true. You always like talk each other up because the last time you went out, it's such a disaster that everybody's kind of like trying to set the bar high and say, you know, this time we're just, you know, we're going to keep it cool and casual. And, and then immediately that all just unravels. So I thought there was some truth there. And I also thought Bobby Moynihan's, um, restaurant owner. (laughs) I thought that was a really great thing to bring into the sketch because his line, like, Every year, like (laughs) there's nothing new about what these girls are doing. Every generation has done this to him every Halloween. And he just, he's resigned to the fact that every year his window is getting broken and people are going to be puking all over his restaurant and he's going to have to open up the hose. And he's just so like calm and decent about going through the motions of just trying to function with, with these idiots that overrun his place every year. <laughs> I felt for this guy. I felt for Bobby Moynihan, just, uh, his earnest desire to just put up his Halloween decorations and just have a fun, innocent evening. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I loved it end to end. I thought it was really, really good. And I felt that it was just quick and really, really smart and on point. Yeah. I think how old you are will, <laughs> will dictate, uh, how you feel towards Bobby Moynihan and how much you, <laughs> how much you sympathize with him. Sure. Yeah. Like, when he's putting up his decorations and he just goes, Oh, spooky. <laughs> just, <laughs> he needs these little moments of satisfaction to just prime him for the chaos. That's going to come through his doors. I love that. They gave him a flashback alongside all the flashbacks for the girls. Yeah. You needed that to present. Okay. What is, seven o'clock version of all these characters versus 11 o'clock version of all these characters. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was really great. It was fun. I don't know who came up with it, but, um, uh, I think, uh, I think they really just, they got it right. It, it was, it was well done. 10 to one sketch America's funniest pets with your host, Ron Howard. <laughs> now I know they did this sketch before. Yeah. I think with Adam driver, right? Adam driver. And he wasn't playing, J.J. Abrams or any any director he's worked with, right? He was no. I think that was just a convenience because Tom Hanks has worked so much with Ron Howard that he could throw out a Ron Howard impression. So why not use it? I think he asked to do a Ron Howard impression. Yeah, you think he just wanted to to take a little bite out of Ron Howard just because they're they're buddies and why not? Yeah, I think I think that was his idea, and they're like, well, that'll work if we just throw it into the uh, the kitty blooper sketch. Sure, sure, that that could be. It was good. It was a good impression. Yeah. Do you think the the sketch overall held together? Uh, yeah, it tickles my funny bone. This the the French accents they do. Cecily and Kate mm-hmm. are amazing when whenever they play these characters. You're right that the girls' impressions are fantastic. Uh, even just the the little effect and gibberish that they can kind of add in as they're making their statements. So you kind of feel like it's almost like a pigeon French, like their, their English is so broken that, that they're almost like sort of chittering to each other in French. That is not an easy thing to, to figure out how to do well. And Cecily Strong in particular is incredibly good at that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think she does incredible work with, with her characters, the sketch itself, the one little beat in it that makes the sketch for me, the girls come, they do their take on it. And Ron Howard gives them notes. And rather than being like, a little pompous about it and thinking they know best. They sincerely and earnestly try to take his notes and weave it into their next run at it. 
And so, you know, he tells him, you know, you, why don't you like put in some little puns or whatever here and there. And so you hear they're very, well, they're good puns, but still in the midst of this dark and sort of like brutal narrative that they're laying out, <laughs> um, to have these puns in the middle of it. That's even funnier that they're trying to do it his way. They're doing their best American comedy, <laughs> but it still comes out. So, uh, yeah macabre yeah totally so i'm glad they brought it back as a 10 to 1 i think it's perfect because it's bizarre it's weird you're forgiving of it because when you do that high concept type of stuff it isn't always wall-to-wall laughs but if the concept is fun you walk away feeling satisfied and i felt that that's exactly what happened here okay that is the run through let's talk a little bit about the high point or best moment of the night yeah i think that the high point of the night for me was uh, Bobby Moynihan pulling out that, that hose. Yeah. The look on his face is like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) business as usual on Halloween. Yeah. So my best moment is probably the whole Bobby Moynihan aspect of that Halloween sketch. (laughs) Okay. I can get behind that. I'm giving it to um, Darnell Hayes and Doug's handshake during black jeopardy. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good one. Just that, that was a fun moment to find in the sketch. And then for them to pull it off where you feel the awkwardness, you see the hesitation, but then you're overcome with joy that they've kind of crossed the lines and, and embraced each other. I don't know. It was, it was weirdly endearing. There's a lot of other moments in the show that I really loved, but that's the one I keep coming back to because it gave me a different feeling than just, oh, that was a funny joke. So I'll give it to that. Okay. All right. So best overall sketch. I think it would have to be Black Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It had the it had the laughs. It had a, a message I could get behind. And it was just, it, it, it was a warm feeling inside to, to see a, a common ground being found between these two these two groups that are often butting heads and are, and are at odds. Yeah. It was incredibly refreshing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm going to give it to that too. I think, uh, the, um, the girls night out pre-tape, I thought that that was pretty smart too, but it was the sketch that end and didn't have any missed beats, shallow writing, or just, there was no weakness end to end. It just played really well. And they even found like a fun way to exit it there at the end where, okay, there's still a certain point where this is all going to unravel. It was nice. It was nice while it lasted, but (laughs) at the end of the day, you're still white. We're still black. And eventually we're going to be looking at you a little cockeyed. Yeah. So good on them. MVP. MVP. Well, (laughs) maybe I'm, I'm doing, I shouldn't be acting retroactively, but I have not given it to Kate McKinnon for all the amazing work she's been doing with Hillary. And plus she was there next to Cecily. Well, I think Cecily stood up mm-hmm. out of the two of them for uh, for that 10 to 1 sketch. Kate was almost just as good uh, with her characterization. So that plus the the Hillary stuff and, and her other appearances, I think, I think she stood out overall as the MVP. Okay. I respect that. So basically we're going to just invert our, our votes from last week because I wanted to give it to Cecily this week. I think what she brought in that French sketch, even though the girl you didn't want to start a conversation with wasn't the best, there was still a lot of Cecily. She was in that, uh, the girlfriend's night out pre-tape. She was doing a lot of work this week and none of it was really uh, a weak point for the show. So if you're going to go with Kate, then I'll flip it around and I'll go with Cecily this week. 
Good. We covered them all. Okay. So now the last few episodes, there hasn't been much controversy about where they've ranked because we've basically said they came out swinging for the premiere and then it's been sort of a slow and steady decline from classic to great to typical slash maybe a little weak. Now, if we were to throw this one in the mix, where does it rank against the previous three? I almost gave it a weak rating. Really? I did. Okay. I think I was a lot warmer on this show than you then. Yeah. I, I was thinking this could be a weak episode and then I was, I caught myself because, you know, this is Tom Hanks's uh, ninth time hosting mm-hmm. something he's dreamed of doing since his eighth time. <laughs> so I had expectations. Like I was, I'm not judging it impartially right off the bat because of Tom Hanks's legacy with the show and, mm-hmm. and the things he's accomplished. So I had to remove myself from that and say, let's just pretend Tom Hanks is some new upcomer Adam driver type. Yep. How would I look at it then? Then it seems more like a typical episode. Okay. If I take that bias away. All right. I'm glad I was able to rise above all that. Okay. And be fair. I think that this was a solidly great episode. A great from you, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you can say last week's was a typical episode and then put this one next to it and say that this is in the same league as last week's episode. I think that that is insanity. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to give you an opportunity to recant here, right? I'm going to let you get back in the show's good graces and take another run at this if you want. But if you're going to stand by that, you know, I'll, I'll respect that, but it's my opinion, man. Yeah. But sometimes opinions are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Let me look at my notes one more time. Black Jeopardy. Howie Block Party. Mm, Bro. Mm, Elevator. Mm. Okay. Here's what we're going to. Yeah. It's typical. Typical. Okay. All right. You're standing by it. So here's what we're going to do. Cold open to cold open. Pretty much a wash. I think this one was maybe a little weaker than yesterday's or last week's. So that's fine. Both in the typical range there. I can agree with you on that. Monologues. I don't think there's any comparison. Much better monologue. Yeah. This week's monologue was smarter. It was more topical. It was a monologue. (laughs) Yes. It was an actual monologue, not a, you know, a group balloon party. There was a lot to like about the monologue. So I think that squarely puts the show off on a better foot. Now, if we walk through all of the live sketches, I think we'll probably agree that for the most part, it was very middle of the road material for the live sketches. Like there, aside from black jeopardy, there wasn't like a really big standout live sketch, but Let's look at the way that those sketches were executed, how much fumbling there was, how much commitment there was to the roles. I don't think there's anything you can hang your hat on in the last episode that compares to uh, just how on board everyone was and how hard they work to make these sketches a little bit more special this week. I felt a much better energy and cohesiveness to the live sketches. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Like, when I say it's a typical episode, I'm giving it like, like if you use like a grading system, right? This would be typical plus. The previous episode would be a typical minus. You, but you know, you know, we don't do that. You know, we don't do that. Typical just means this is a standard run of the mill Saturday Night Live. Did you feel that this was a standard run of the mill Saturday Night Live? Yes. Oh my goodness. That, that's how I feel. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think we've uh, fully explored that episode. So let's call it a cast. Thanks to my guest, Steve Finn. You can connect with Steve on Facebook at Transparency CHMR. 
and you can connect with us at snlafterparty.fm. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. These reviews help us to get the word out, and they're greatly appreciated. We'll be back in two weeks when SNL returns with host Benedict Cumberbatch and musical guest Solange. This has been episode number four of the Saturday Night Live After Party podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night, and have a pleasant tomorrow. Shanice. Let's go with they be they out there saying for 200. Okay, the answer, they out here saying the new iPhone wants your thumbprint for your protection. <laughs> oh, okay then, Doug. What, what is, I, I don't think so. That's how they get you. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> I don't trust that. Me either. No, I read that and go straight to the government. Mm. <laughs> well, that is not bad, Doug. <laughs> Yes. <laughs>